Marvel Cinematic Universe has taken the movie world by storm in recent years. 23 films telling the story of the comic book superheroes, The Avengers. Thor and Captain America, Iron Man, Hulk, Black Widow and their friends uniting with their very different backstories and their very different superpowers to protect the universe together. In one of the films, Avengers Assemble, we really see this group of previously independent superheroes unite as the Avengers for the first time. It's a pivotal moment in the series. Faced with danger on all sides in this city that's being destroyed by bad guys, the camera trucks to show the heroes circled together, ready to fight together as one for the first time. There's an intentional pause before they fight as we see them ready to do battle together as one and use their incredible powers as a team. You know, each superhero is powerful in their own right, but they could be defeated by the right enemy on their own. But together, as the assembled Avengers, there's a sense that they can overcome any difficulty. The Avengers are assembled and nothing will ever be the same again. Why on earth am I talking about comic book superheroes this morning? Well, we are launching a brand new, exciting preaching series, which draws in a way from this moment of superhero fanciful action. This series is about a group of gifted individuals who combine for something greater, and we're calling this series Ecclesia Assemble. Now you're probably thinking, Butters, what on earth are you on about? What is Ecclesia? Well, very simply, Ecclesia is the biblical Greek word used in the New Testament for church. Church. Now, the famous verse, of course, where we see this used for the very first time, it's actually a phrase that Jesus coins himself. Matthew 16, verse, uh, verse 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the very first time you see the word used. And, and over time, the word church has become synonymous actually with physical buildings. We might look at a brick and mortar structure with a tower or a steeple on the top or a cross on the outside and say, look, there's a church. Liverpool is full of beautiful church buildings, including a couple of massive church cathedrals uh, designed as monuments of, to God and places where people can come and meet with God. But when Jesus talks about building his church, his ecclesia, he's not talking about a physical building. The ecclesia is all about people. At its most literal, the word ecclesia in Greek is made up of two different words, ek, meaning out of, and the verb kaleo, uh, which is to call. So the word kind of means called out ones, and, and, and when Jesus uses this word, he uses it to describe the entirety of all of those people in the whole of history who would believe in him. Those who are called out by God to follow Jesus. What he's, he refers to what we might call the universal church, the sum total of all Christian believers in history. But as the New Testament goes on, we see this word ecclesia used again and again more at a local level. We see Paul talking about different church ecclesia communities, the ecclesia in Corinth, the ecclesia in Rome, the ecclesia in Galatia, in Ephesus, and etc. And then in Revelation, we see Jesus writing letters to seven different churches, seven different ecclesias in different cities. It becomes clear that wherever a group of believers is gathered in a locality, they are referred to in the New Testament as an ecclesia, a group of Christian believers called out by God to follow Jesus wherever they are. So Freedom Church Liverpool is Freedom Ecclesia Liverpool, a gathered group of called out believers to follow Jesus in this city together. So what is the point of this series? Why are we looking at Ecclesia Assemble? 
Well, let's flip back to the Avengers for just a moment. The Avengers assembling, as I said, was supposed to be this really great thing. There's supposed to be a great joy and relief that they were getting together to use their powers to protect the universe. But as the series of films develops, they actually run into some problems. Three types of problems, actually. First, the problem of opposition from enemies. Several different supervillains make very, very powerful attempts to defeat the Avengers in their own quest for world domination. And they manage to inflict some pretty serious damage on the Avengers at times. Secondly, the Avengers face some criticism and cynicism from the public in general. There's questions about the collateral damage that they cause in trying to defend off the bad guys other people and other places get hurt and damaged. Some people even die as civilian collateral damage. And so they face criticism for that. And then thirdly, they actually face difficulties in their internal relationships with each other. There's vast differences of opinions and rivalries that form within the Avengers, which ultimately leads to a schism, a civil war, which almost ends in complete disaster. You know, the kind of belief in the good of the Avengers at times starts to wane. And at one point they barely exist as a force. And you know what? It's a bit like the church in some ways. The ecclesia, God's church, has faced its fair share of issues down the years, internal and external. In fact, in the Western world, we can really say that the church in some respects is in steady decline. It's faced huge opposition, opposition from enemies who've wanted to shut the church down altogether through persecution and other means. It's faced huge criticism and skepticism from the public at large, sometimes warranted, sometimes because of things that the church has done just really wrongly. Things like sex abuse, and, uh, and corruption and embezzlement that has eroded people's trust in the church as an institution. And there's been internal battles as well. We've seen civil war in the church over many years. We've seen theological differences created, creating vast schisms within the church. It hasn't done itself any favors at times. Perhaps the biggest battle we face, certainly here in the West, is that one of apathy, the fight for relevance. We've seen the, the rapid rise in many year, in over many years of individualism and even social media, which, which has started to substitute the way we do relationship with one, one another. Actually, church is almost, in some cultures, seems a bit outdated because we want to be together and people don't want to do that anymore. They want to sit behind a screen. And right now, the church is facing an interesting, if not altogether, new crisis. Our ability to legally meet together and physically gather has been completely inhibited by COVID-19. Our local Ecclesia communities, so firmly based on fellowship, have been tested. We've had to rely on online meetings, physical meetings where we have been able to gather, been really restricted in what we can do. We are 11 months on as a church, Freedom Church Liverpool, since we last met together physically. That's hard, that's been a hard slog. You know, we've, we've had to plod through this and make do with online gatherings and all the limitations and frustrations of Zoom calls. And you know what, it's been a great effort from so many people. We're so thankful that people have made this work. Actually, we're thankful to you at home, sticking with us and watching, tuning in and joining in every week faithfully from where you are. It's been an incredible uh, story. But the season has provoked loads of different responses. Some Christians have suggested that the pandemic has actually proven we don't really need to gather as church anymore. We can just rely on Zoom and YouTube. Why, why go back to gathering? Well, this series is really all about the importance of God's gathered ecclesia, his gathered body of believers. We want to reinvigorate our passion for physical church and to prepare ourselves for the dynamic power of meeting together again. We want to look at what that means, why it matters, how it works, what our different roles are in it and why we believe we should be really excited about it. 
we're going to see that the ecclesia, the church, greatly benefits those who are part of it in the gathering and even those who are not part of it. And we're going to look forward sooner rather than later, we hope, to when we can finally assemble as the ecclesia again. You know, the key to ecclesia, the thing that sets it apart is the presence of God. The word ecclesia already existed in the Greek and Roman world before Jesus kind of requisitioned it for the use to describe his church. In, in Greek and Roman culture, the ecclesia was the assembly of citizens in a large city. The people would be called out to gather together at key moments in a city or country's life to make big strategic decisions. So the ecclesia would be called together to declare war or to declare an election. So what's so special about Jesus's ecclesia, his church, compared to any other just normal gathering of people? Well, as I say, it's, it's the presence of God, the God's ecclesia, Jesus' ecclesia, is uniquely defined by God's presence. The ecclesia is not a building, but the Bible does describe it as housing the very presence of God. And frankly, if we didn't have the presence of God, there'd be very little special about our gathering at all. Let me just give us a little brief history. I want to help you just understand the history of this a little bit biblically, the history of, of God's presence in his people. The first thing we need to know about God's presence is that it was promised to us. Throughout scripture from Genesis onwards, God makes it really clear that his desire is to have a relationship with his people that he's created. He longs to dwell with us. We see this phrase repeated over and over again in scripture, I will be their God and they will be my people. Just, just pause on that for a moment. The God of heaven, in all of his majesty and perfection and glory, wants to be and dwell with us. He wants a relationship. That's, I think that's remarkable. I'm reminded of World War II at this point. Uh, the Queen Mother, who at that point was the Queen, she was the wife of King George VI. She was praised during World War II because of her, her amazing visits to the lo local communities in London during the wake of the Blitz and the bombings. Her and the King had actually decided to stay in London, to stay in Buckingham Palace and not flee to the retreat of a country. They wanted to stay where they were. They felt that sent an important message. In fact, at one point, Buckingham Palace itself was bombed and the Queen said, Do you know what? I'm glad this has happened because now I can look the East End in the eye. Her visits to damaged, bombed out communities were treasured greatly by the people. Bill Bartley, who was a Londoner at the time, said this, when we saw the Queen that day, when she visited us, everybody lost their downheartedness. There was still an air raid going on when she walked through the rubble and I always thought the world of her. She doesn't sit back pompous-like. I remember her putting her arm around people covered in blood and grime and consoling them. I feel she knows what our lives were like. People like Bill Bartley were just amazed that a wealthy royal figure would enter their mess and identify with them and console them. It was a morale boost. It was a hugely powerful statement, actually. But you know what? At the end of the day, the Queen Mother would return to her palace while those that she had visited were left to still try and rebuild their lives from the rubble. The royals show their face briefly, but over history, really, what we've seen from the royals uh, is very little intention of actually wanting to dwell with us. You know, they, they go and live their lives off in their, in their castles and palaces normally. So how incredible is it when we hear God's word 
that he wants to be our God and for, for us to be his people, that he wants to live with us day by day, not just, not just pop in and out of our lives at a key moment, not just visit, visit us when it's tough and then pop back away again. He wants to dwell with us, not just visit us. That is remarkable. We need to just understand, first and foremost, the beauty and amazingness of that promise. So that's the first point, God's promise their presence is promised to us. But the second thing is that God's presence throughout biblical history is restricted by our sin. In the Old Testament, we see that God's dwelling with us, with his people, with Israel at the time, was restricted to specific locations, namely tabernacles and later on the temple. This was because of the sinfulness of the people of Israel. Their sinfulness could not mix with the pure, brilliant holiness of God. It meant that God could not be directly accessed by people, only specifically designated people like priests who we'll learn more about later on in this series could go on into his presence. And even then there was a myriad of rules and rituals that had to be observed as a safeguard to protect and honor God's presence. Sacrifices had to be made, blood needed to be shed to honor God and to atone for the sinfulness of the people. And those sacrifices would serve the purpose of achieving forgiveness, but only temporarily. Further sacrifices were needed regularly to keep on atoning for the sin and allow the people uh, to, to be at one with God. And as restricted as his presence was, Moses though understood that without God's presence, the people of Israel had nothing that would distinguish them from any other nation. In Exodus, just after the people had ruined one of the most holy moments of all, where God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments on the mountain, they set up a golden calf idol and worship that instead of God. And God is so angry, he says, you know what, guys? Now you're going to go on a journey and I'm not coming with you. You've lost my presence. But Moses pleads on their behalf. He intercedes with prayer and says, God, you promised us that you will be our God and we will be your people. And he says this uh, in Exodus, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, God, you've promised us that you'll be our God. If you don't come with us, then we're not your people anymore. You've got to be with us. We need your presence. Otherwise, we're just like any other nation on earth. Moses understood that God's presence, even in, even in its restricted nature, was what set the people apart. So God promised his presence to us, presence to us, and then it was restricted in the Old Testament. Then we get to the good bit, the bit where we see that God's presence made freely available to his people through Jesus. I'm cutting a very long story short here, but through you know, God's restricted presence lasted with the Israelites for many centuries, through prophets, through kings, uh, through all sorts of highs and lows. But he always made it clear that there was something better coming something better than this restricted tabernacle and temple presence. King Solomon hints at it actually, when he first actually, he, King Solomon's the one who gets to build the temple, a permanent home for God, not a tent, like the tabernacle, but a permanent home. But he says, as the temple is being commissioned in 1 Kings 8, he says, but God, will you indeed dwell upon the earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built. In other words, God, I've built this temple for you, but you're bigger than that. I know I can't contain you in a building. This is just a temporary fix. And ultimately we see that Jesus, God's son, is the one through whom he completes his plan to be present with his people, the Messiah. He's, God is so determined to be truly 
and permanently present with his people, that he sends Jesus to earth itself, not just for a visit like, like the Queen Mother, but to live a pure life, to die a sacrificial death, and to provide a perfect and permanent sacrifice of a completely sinless and blameless man that will fully atone for the sins and rebellion of everyone. God just didn't just pop down for a photo op. He became flesh and he experienced human life in all of its complexity and pain and joy and sorrow. He literally dwelled among us and then he died for us and rose again. Because of this, access to God was no longer restricted to a chosen few. Upon accepting that sacrifice and death and resurrection of Jesus for ourselves, we then receive God's forgiveness. And, and then anyone who does that can come close and know the presence of God in their life. The sin which has separated us and made the need for tabernacles and temples was gone. So God promises his presence. God restricted his presence. Then he's made it freely accessible through Jesus. And it's freely accessible and it is received through the Spirit. See, Jesus' presence on earth was utterly remarkable. It was world-changing. The very presence of God walked among us and dwelled with us as a human being. But as a human, Jesus could only be in one place at one time. God had something even better in store to ensure that he could be present with his people forever as freely as possible. Jesus himself says in John 16, Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And that's exactly what happened. Once Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, God sent in Acts uh, 1 and 2 his permanent presence to dwell within the heart of each believer, the Holy Spirit, through whom we experience the love of God, who helps us to relate to God as our Father, we saw way back when we went through the book of Acts together in a preaching series, the Holy Spirit's presence is what leads the believers uh, and, and is the dynamic force behind the explosion of the church, God's ecclesia. It is God's presence in the heart of believers as the Holy Spirit, which drives it all. God made himself present in the heart of every believer of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. He's made each one of us uniquely with our own personalities and characteristics, and he gives us spiritual gifts through the Holy Spirit. So he promised his presence. It was restricted. Jesus made it available. We receive it, his presence through the Holy Spirit. But now this is the good stuff. God's presence is most powerfully experienced in his ecclesia in the gathered church. And that's where I want to just spend the rest of our time this morning. The really amazing thing is that even though we can relate to him in private, we each have our Holy Spirit indwelling as Christians, we get to experience him most powerfully and manifestly when we are together, when we're gathered. God delights in most powerfully demonstrating his presence when his church is gathered corporately. The New Testament makes it super clear that God's ecclesia is the place where he has chosen to dwell in power. We said at the start, the church is not a building, it's people. But funnily enough, the Bible uses loads of imagery about buildings to help us to understand that it is in us gathering as the church that where God's presence is found. 
For instance, 1 Corinthians 3 verses 9 to 11, that tells us that the Ecclesia is God's building, founded and built on Jesus as his cornerstone. That's like the foundation stone that we take our structure from. And that, G- and that he's chosen us as the materials, as individual peoples filled with the Spirit, as the, the materials to build the dwelling of God with. Not bricks and mortar, but Spirit-filled people. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 carries this on. It reiterates that as the Ecclesia we are, and I quote, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So there's no need for a physical temple or tabernacle anymore. God dwells in us as we gather as the built church. His very presence is here among us. As we meet together, we are hosting the very presence of God together. A big piece of heaven is present whenever two or more gather right here in Liverpool or anywhere else. 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 5, some of my favourite verses of scripture, they remind us that we are living stones built into a spiritual house, chosen by God and precious to him. What a statement that is. Do you have any idea of how significant it is to be chosen by God, to house his presence and to be considered as precious to him? Wow, that is just beautiful. He loves his gathering, his ecclesia, his church. It is precious to him and he longs to pour out his blessing on us as we gather. And finally, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, again, just reiterates that we are the temple of the living God, the living God. God will live and walk amongst his people. And of course, this first quote, what I mentioned, the repeated phrase earlier of the Old Testament, I will be their God and they will be my people. That is the church where this happens most clearly. It is obvious here through scripture, we see it so clearly, the presence of God, once restricted the tabernacles, has taken up residence in individual believers, millions of living tabernacles, if you like, and that's remarkable, but even more, he's building these individual tabernacles into one big, powerful, dynamic community where his presence is evident most when we're gathered bit of a detour here but I'm reminded a bit about starlings you know those beautiful little birds it's a bit random I know but a starling is a lovely little bird it's it's wonderfully made it's gifted with flight it's able to swoop and to soar and to enjoy its life with all its god-given capabilities but actually the starling is a pretty common bird here in the UK if you saw one in the street very few people would stop and stare and wonder at it and it's just a bird you know it's it's amazing that it can fly and all that but you wouldn't stop and stare at just a starling on its own but Have you ever seen a murmuration? A murmuration is when vast numbers of starlings, thousands, even millions, come together in the sky and they form this swelling, dancing, gliding uh, mass in the sky. They swoop this way and that, they rise and fall, they expand and contract with just such beauty and grace. Scientists believe that starlings murmurate for their own benefit, for warmth from the cold, for protection on mass from predators, and possibly even to share and communicate information about food sources. But murmuration also has a benefit for those who get to see it. It brings such joy and pleasure. While you might not stop in the street and look at one starling, I tell you, when you see a murmuration, you stop what you're doing and you stare in wonder at what's going on. It's impossible not just to just open mouth, stare and say, wow, that is an amazing sight. Somehow, when you see thousands of them together, what they do individually takes on this new, rare kind of beauty in the gathering. 
I think there's a parallel there, if you go with me, for the church. Each individual Christian is remarkable in our own right. We have the very presence of God in us. We have our, each have our own gifts uh, and, and, and that from the Holy Spirit. And like a starling on its own is perfectly able to fly, we are perfectly able to enjoy God's presence on our own. Of course we are, he doesn't withhold that from us. But somehow, when we gather, when you put more than one Christian together, whether it's two or 200 or 2,000, that same presence of God that was already there with us becomes tangible and visible and evident to a far greater and more beautiful degree. There's a benefit for us in that as Christians, as we fellowship together, but also that, that togetherness, that fellowship displays something else beautiful to those who can see it from the outside. It suddenly shines, it captivates. God's power and beauty and presence is visible and evident to the utmost in the gathering. The clearest place to see this in scripture is Acts chapter two. We see the early church gathering uh, for the first time. And it says this, verses 42 onwards. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship, the togetherness, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being, were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Notice that first line there. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship. And we see the word together repeated throughout that passage. So important we don't miss that. They devoted themselves to being together. It's a bit of a Christian jargony word, fellowship, but basically it talks, it's the act of being together. It's the act of being united with one another and, and enjoying each other's presence. And it was so important that the church devoted themselves to it. And the writer of Hebrews later on insists that as the church, we must not neglect to meet together. Only in fellowship, in togetherness, could many of the things that the early church did take place. Only together could they proper, properly share communion, could they properly pray for one another, minister to one another, encourage one another, even just eat and drink and talk to one another together. And later on, we learn about the Holy Spirit's gifts and how they are most beautifully expressed together in the body. The Holy Spirit gave gifts, and Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians about about how they are for the encouragement and building up of one another. The Spirit's gifts are designed for being together. And not only do they bless and encourage each other, but they say something to the outside world. They, see, they look in and see what is going on there. That looks amazing. I want to be part of that. And that's exactly what we saw in Acts. The Lord added to their number daily because they were out there. They were meeting together publicly and they couldn't get enough of it. They're like, something is going on here. I want to be part of that. They benefited from it themselves and it blessed the world around them. Guys, if over this last 11 months, you've been feeling like something has been missing, like online church is all right, but it's been a bit frustrating and disappointing at times, like, like there's something better. Do you know what? You're absolutely right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be speaking into a camera right now. That's not where I wanna be really. We're designed to be gathered physically 
experiencing God together on our Sundays, in our life groups, in our new huddles, in our prayer meetings, even in just our social gathering, having each other around for dinner or meeting up somewhere. We're at our best when we are together as the Ecclesia. And when we can't, it should hurt. It should feel incomplete. We should long for it. But guys, the day is coming when we will physically gather again, where the Ecclesia will assemble once more. And we are so excited for that day. And I hope you are too. You might be tempted to say, you know what, but online church is easier. Like there's no chairs to put out. There's no tea and coffee to make. There's no kids work to plan. Uh, There's no PA gear to set up and pack down. It's just a bit easier. Maybe we should just stay online. You know, we can still study the word and hear a preach and and pray virtually. What's the urgency? What's missing? Well, you know, there might be some truth to some of those things. And as I say, starlings can fly on their own, but they gain so much more from the gathering. And it's the same for us as Christians. We can survive to a certain extent alone, but we miss out on so much that we get when we gather. We want to remind you and encourage you that where we are is temporary and that the day is coming when we will assemble. God is not done with his ecclesia. He hasn't changed his mind about the importance of gathering and neither have we. If anything, this crisis, this pandemic has made us more aware and more passionate than ever for the good of his gathered church. I can't wait to gather on a Sunday morning and hear people powerfully praying the promises of God over each other, to hear the likes of our our guys who are gifted with prophetic, to to come and bring what God has been saying to them on a Sunday morning, to to join our voices together in worship and loud celebration, praising God to the heavens, to see the body of Christ just lovingly ministering to one another with prayer and encouragement, to see our tea and coffee team giving the warmest Liverpool welcome with the best coffee and biscuits in in the town, to see our kids legging it around the place with big smiles on their faces, just the joy of being together, to see tears flowing as God ministers to people and his presence touches people together. To see your army of servant-hearted people going about their, their work and doing amazing things for each other. To see our students and 20s laughing and joking together as they, as they try and decide whether to go for lunch in the tavern or the Richmond Tavern on a Sunday. To hear our people just talking about what's going on in their lives and what God is doing. We can't wait until we finally gather together again. God's ecclesia, united in his presence, sharing fellowship and love for one another. Freedom Church, Liverpool. Freedom Ecclesia, Liverpool. It is almost time to assemble again. Are you ready? Are you excited? Let's prepare ourselves. Let's be praying for this day and let's eagerly await it together. And let's believe that God will use it for our benefit and for the benefit of the city that we are in. God bless, guys.